if you're not grieving, take the time to learn about it. If you are grieving, give yourself grace and know that most people don't know the right things to say and the right things to do. So be your own advocate and try to, to give yourself that self-care that you need. Welcome to the Break the Chains, Find Your Flame podcast. Our goal of this podcast is to provide insight and wisdom into all things mental health, to sit down with individuals and talk about their journey, how they've broken free from the chains that bind them, to find their flame, their passions, and purpose. Welcome back and Happy New Year to all the listeners out there. We are so excited to come back in this new year with some new episodes of the podcast. And today is a very great episode. We got to sit down with my friend Debbie Lucy Maynard and we got to talk about her life, her journey and her passions and how she broke free from the chains that were holding her back to find her flame and find her passions. Now, this episode is going to have a trigger warning because we talk about some really specific things around suicide, loss, grief, and suicidal thinking. Wanted to let all the listeners know before they sit down to take a listen that those are the topics of this episode. But I do want to just put that out. You know, stop now if you feel like this will be too much for you. Please also check out the show notes for resources for you or for anyone you know who may be struggling with suicidal thoughts, grief, or loss. Debbie and I got to catch up after years, and we got to talk about our histories, her her loss of her brother to suicide, and I, I just can't speak more highly about all she does and what she's doing in life and just her personal outlook on things and how she works with and learns from the people that she serves. So take a listen and join me in knowing the awesomeness that is Debbie. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Today, we have a fantastic guest. I think this is the second high school peer that I've had on the podcast. I'm really honored to have her on today. Her name, her name, I'm already going to have to edit. See, Debbie, it's going to be okay. (laughs) Her name is Debbie Lucy Maynard. Welcome. Thank you, Steve. It's an honor to be here with you, and it's great to see you after so many years. Many I know years, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's been a long time, so I'm glad to be here. We just hit uh, a 20-year reunion, I think, last year, right? And uh, 20 years from being out of high school, which is kind of crazy when you think about it, um, because 
now we've been out of high school longer than when we were in school. So it's, it's kind of oh, a gosh, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I turn these things over like pebbles in my mind a lot. And I've, I've, I've become really used to that. And then I forget that sometimes when I talk to other people, they don't do that like I do. And they're like, what are you doing, man? You're just ruining it. It's like seeing uh, the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. It's like, oh, I know, I'm going to be thinking about that tonight now. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> so, Debbie, we always start the podcast off with just having our guests give a little origin story, uh, kind of spiel about who they are, what they do and how you've found your passion and, and the work that you're doing. So, you know, just really light answers. <laughs> nothing, nothing too heavy. I was going to say little. All right. How do I how do I keep that kind of short and sweet? Well, I'm from Belchertown, Massachusetts. I, I grew up in a two parent household with a sister and a brother. I'm the youngest of three. And as you had shared, we had gone to school together. School was not the, the best time for me, to be honest. And once I made it into college, that was my, my time. Um, that's when I felt like I was finding my niche and started going into early childhood education. I knew I wanted to work with people, not exactly sure what. And while I was going through that college career, halfway in, my brother died. Um, and he died by suicide in 2004. That was the changing moment for me in life. I ended up changing my degree from early childhood education, which, to be honest, once I had done an internship in a kindergarten, I knew it wasn't for me. Um, I was I was scared. <laughs> yeah, you learn you learn very quickly. Sometimes I have like uh, middle schoolers, and I get nervous. Like I was back in middle school when I when I counsel with them, I'm like, oh no, they're gonna hate me. What? And then I have to oh. silence that part. But yes, I, you learn pretty That's quickly funny. if you're in the right area. Yeah. And it was so funny because I always thought kids would be my comfort zone because adults could be scary. And once I went into that kindergarten classroom for an internship, I was like, it's like a, a little gang in here. So I, <laughs> I ended up finding my passion where I didn't think I would, which at that time was with uh, working with adults. And then I started to focus on grief. Um, it became a more of a volunteer type of situation at that time, as I was trying to also find my career. We have to have a livelihood. And so I went into child protection. I did that for about eight years with the state of Massachusetts until I found my calling working with military bereaved families, which is what I currently do now with the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. I work there as a director of survivor support. So that's in a, a really short clip of who I am and how I got to where I am today. I think that's beautifully done. Obviously, we're going to jump into some of this so we can kind of talk about grief and talk about that journey, because I think it's a, a really important thing to destigmatize and to talk about and, and to share. And I, I really appreciate you being open and honest and sharing your story and, and what you've gone through. Um, and coming on today just to kind of have this conversation because there's so much. And I also want to share, I, not a ton of people know this, but uh, I lost one of my cousins years ago um, mm -hmm. and actually TAP, you reached out to me and TAP reached out to me just to kind of check in and, and you know, offer support to the family and to um, 
you know, the extended family in general, but also to like the really um, his, his family specifically. And I really have always appreciated that. And I don't know if I've ever really responded to you in that way, but I do really appreciate that outreach because it was really important, not just to me, but to the family in general. So thank you again for that. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about grief um, to, to segue into it. And, and, you know, a lot of people, I think, have heard grief and see a lot of memes on social media about grief and a lot of philosophies on grief. But I'm wondering if you could give me a little rundown of just some of the work that you do and what what grief is, uh, let's say, in layman's terms, so that we can kind of kickstart our conversation. So grief is all, all that pain that we feel when a loved one passes. It's feelings that are just such as a tornado inside of us, feeling overwhelmed, distracted, just the loss of ability to function or feel like we're whole. And a lot of people confuse grief and mourning where mourning is that outward projection of of that pain and that sadness. One of the things that we do is we try to help people who are grieving find their their toolkit for how they can take care of themselves throughout this time, first and foremost, to remain safe. When somebody dies by suicide, the family members and those who, who were around them are at a higher risk for also dying by suicide. And so our first focus is always safety of those individuals, but that's with any death. Um, suicide is near and dear to my heart because that's how my brother died. And that's what threw me into this, this world of grief. At the same time, I've learned so much about everybody's pain is, is their pain and has things that come with it. And then we all have a past. And so it can bring up those skeletons from our past as well to complicate our grieving process. What we do at TAPS is we try to make sure that people have a peer. We do a lot of peer support. We find that that is extremely helpful in the grieving process. So a surviving mother will reach out to another surviving mom or a surviving sibling to a surviving sibling, spouse to a spouse, father to a father. And we try to, to make sure that people have their peer connections and an outlet outside of your family. The interesting thing that I have found with grief is what it does to the family dynamics. The way that I look at it is with my family. And that's the best way sometimes for me to speak is about my journey. Right. Because everyone's journey you know. is so different. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in talking to people, it's just everyone's so different that you can never put a blanket statement across grief. It's not something where you can tell someone, well, this is what will work. I can always share what worked for me. And they can grab pieces that they want to grab. But with our family, it was like someone threw a puzzle on the ground, took out a piece and said, put it back together. And, and how did we do that? Really, it, it took so much time and learning on my end. Um, I had to learn about grief for a couple of reasons. First was so that I stopped feeling like I was going crazy. Um, right. <laughs> I, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where... I lived off peanut butter and jelly for a little while. And I remember putting, or I don't remember, but I found the peanut butter in the fridge and the jelly in the cabinet. Right. And just a simple mistake like that 
made me come to tears that day because I didn't understand why I was not functioning like a normal person per se. And so I had to learn about grief so that I could give myself some grace to go through the process. And then I also had to learn about it so I could give my family members grace because I thought I knew the way to grieve to get through it. And I'm a fixer. I like to help people, hence the social worker now. Um, Guilty over here as well. Yes. And so I had to learn that the way that worked for me didn't necessarily work for my sister or for my parents and step back and let people go through their process. So that's um, just a little bit about kind of the grief process and what I've done with with work and really been honored to be a part of through our organization. Yeah. And it's amazing. I think it's, you know, I think when we talk about mental health, we talk a lot about, you know, the buzzwords of, you know, depression, anxiety, trauma, all really, really important things to pay attention to, obviously. And, but one of the things I think that's left out a lot is grief and loss because of how significant you know, that process is for anyone who's undergoing it. Just like you said, you know, destigmatizing that process and learning about it is really important, if not just for you, but for the people in your family or your friends who might also be going through it. And we tend to gaslight ourselves sometimes with, with these things because, you know, that peanut butter jelly situation that, that you're talking about it seems like on the outside, it seems like, oh, it's just a small thing. People do that, you know, it, it's okay. But in that moment with everything going on, you start to question what exactly is going on. And you become, you kind of turn that around and start to internalize a lot of that stuff. And, you know, without having a clear understanding of what that might be, it becomes really tricky to to move forward or to, you know, be generative to yourself because you start to limit your abilities and your thoughts. Yes. And the other thing, thinking back to that time, was the lack of other people's understanding of what I was going through. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, they didn't understand. When I reflect back, thankfully, they didn't know how I felt and what I was going through because they hadn't been through a traumatic loss or a loss that... Um, we all grieve and have the pain, but sometimes it can feel different when it comes out of the order that society has placed in our head from the time we were little, sure. which is that, you know, if you're lucky enough to have great grandparents or great, great grandparents alive, when you're here that they pass first, the oldest generations, and then down to the youngest, when that comes out of order due to, I think the way society has created this really false narrative, because uh, there are, many times that that is not the order, not in in this world that we live in. And so you have this expectation. And then if there's trauma involved and how the death occurs, which many times there is, Mm. now you have these other areas that are impacting. And for people who haven't been through it or been educated on it, I found that they, unfortunately, lack compassion, not that they lacked a good heart. And so I want to just separate the two because I think that these individuals, yeah, yeah, they they were really great people, but they didn't have the compassion behind it because they didn't understand it. 
And you can't be empathetic unless you've been there in some sense. So they didn't have that area. And one of them was a professor. I was in school for early childhood education, and she actually came to my apartment. Um, She did home visits already because she would come in and check on our internships and we were out doing field placements. So she would already come and, and you'd meet with her. But when I told her I couldn't because my brother died, she actually showed up one day unannounced to try to still get her work in on time. Right. And it was about two days after he died. And my landlord at the time also was very insistent that they had to do maintenance came through for an annual check. And I kept saying, you know, please just let me get through a little bit of time here. And they forced it. She, she said, we will not renew your lease unless we can come in and, and do our, our checks. So the just simple things where I needed a little more understanding and compassion, it's nice to be able to, to connect and let educate those who maybe wouldn't understand and would find themselves doing something similar because everyone is very self-focused often. We're in a world that you have to meet deadlines and you have to do certain things so you can afford your life and pay for your, your family. And, and I understand that, but when it comes to grief, it hits us all. And it's such a unique type of situation that it throws us into. Right. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's a big thing in what I've experienced too, whether working with families uh, of loss or, you know, individuals and trying to figure out, you know, how to process that that grief that comes up for you. A lot of it is, well, we got to show up. Like there's a sense of not even in uh, professors or friends or something, but also with families. I think there's a sense of, oh, propriety, right? We need to show up for our loved ones. So we're going to be over there all the time. And sometimes that can be helpful depending on the individual. And sometimes that can be really limiting for the individual too, who's processing through it because of, um, you know, just that need to, to figure out how they're going to do it. Cause I think a lot of times um, being someone who's gotten through the grieving process for, for several situations in my life, you feel like, and again, I'm just speaking for me, like you said, it's very individualized, but um, I felt when people came to try to be that support, then I had to become a steward of their emotions and kind of say, no, no, it's okay. Thank you for coming. I appreciate that support. And then instead of being able to process through it or sit with it, I felt like I would have to be this, this version of myself to help them because of their own emotions related to it. And I think it it is really interesting when you think about how how we grieve individually because of life doesn't just stop, right? Mm-hmm. And there's an expectation that a lot of people carry that say, well, this this amount of time has passed, so you should be good, just move on. And, or even days at work. Yeah. Just look at the way that in countries do it differently. If you look at other areas of the world, mm-hmm. but with the United States the average seems to be three to 10 bereavement days. Mm-hmm. And then they tell you what family members that you can take that bereavement time for. So the message right. that that sends right away is, Hey, after 10 days, we want you back and we want you to be efficient. It, it just, the way that we have these messages coming at us sends a, a message to us that really isn't 
I shouldn't say so much true, but it's not something we're able to do. So even with the best intentions and wanting, I don't know anybody who hasn't wanted to get back to their so-called normal life. Right. Nobody wants to be feeling that pain and, and wants to be really struggling with their grief, but it's so natural. And to put dates and then populations, you know, you can only take bereavement for grandparents and parents and siblings and children. It, it seems to me that if you grew up with somebody or had uh, aunt or uncle or guardian, anybody who is taking care of you, you should be able to say who you need those days for. But that's not the way that, that we're set up. No, and I have a big family. Uh, they're all over <laughs> Belcher Town. And some of my closest cousins, I've always felt like we've had a sibling relationship. And so I could see that connection of, oh, well, you can only have it for siblings or parents or grandparents. And I, I could see the need for bereavement days if, if God forbid, I lose a, a cousin in that way, that it was more of a sibling to me than a cousin so to speak, right, through yes. social norms. And I think that's another really, really important part of what you're talking about here is more of education around this process because there's, it's startling to me how, how much lack of education is generally out there for, you know, a population that, let's face it, probably deals with grieving significantly, significantly throughout their lifetime. Mm -hmm. And not only with humans, I mean, people can grieve all sorts of different areas, yeah. job loss, relationship loss, uh, natural disasters that take away people's homes, but also pet loss. Um, yes. That's a big one that's overlooked. And I recently had also endured that. And I'll tell Sorry, you, yeah. thank you. It was, um, I say recently, but it's actually been about two years. It feels very recent. Yeah, sure. Because he was my shadow. and. I didn't think when he died that it was going to be as traumatic as it was, but it put me right back into those feelings of just no control, um, you know, not able to, to control having this, my pet stay with me, just like right. I couldn't control when my brother died and, and falling back into a lot of those same feelings of just it, a lot of times grief and depression can kind of run side by side yeah. and they have a lot of similar symptoms. And that's the other hard thing, I think, for medical professionals or any professional in trying to support somebody because depression has, it's an imbalance within your brain. So you're looking more at medications, whereas grief is more of a process that your body goes through. Not to say medication can't help if you're having struggles with needs to sleep, right. um, eating you know, medication can be helpful for a time, but there's other things that also can be a, a support there. But the, yeah, a lot of, a lot of um, mental health concerns that we can have as individuals can have very similar symptoms. And then when somebody dies, trying to find out, is it complicated, a mental health concern we had prior. And, and truly, I think everybody has some type of mental health concerns that we could all look at and diagnose yeah. within myself and others. Because oh, I agree. <laughs> the world doesn't leave us untouched. That's I for mean, sure. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> the other part of the, 
the stigmatizing as like, oh, we've come to think of mental health as only referring to um, diagnoses when in reality, it's like, well, it's all sides of the spectrum. It's these intense moments. It's also these struggles and it's also the well-being of your mental ability, right? Of your mind. And so when you, when you say mental health, there's a period of time that people just kind of back away from it. It's like, oh, you, you, I don't have those, those things. It's like, you have a mind, <laughs> you yes. have mental health. It's not different. <laughs> it's not just these diagnoses. It's the spectrum of going through uh, these different emotions and these different sticking points and everything that you're saying. Yes. Well, thanks. And to back up when you were talking about education again, because that really is such an important part. The way we raise the younger generations, I'm noticing now more and more because I take time and I, I step back and I'm very intentional about taking time just to reflect and, and look at the way the world is running by me. And one of the things I'd realized with Halloween, not too far behind us here, is how we have used cemeteries in our culture as a Halloween event. And reflecting back, my brother died, I was 21. I had not really been into cemeteries before. I was one that used to go by them as quick as possible. If, as a kid, if I was riding my bike, I would purposely avoid the cemetery near our house if I could. It was a scary place for me. And some of that, I think, was due to movies, TV shows, Halloween decorations, and the way that it was portrayed, that the graveyard is ghosts and it's a bad area. And then when my brother ended up in one, I'm sitting here going, I want to be there. Part of my morning experience was I wanted to put things there and I wanted to go there at all different hours. There were just times that I wanted to go there at 11 o'clock at night. And put something there or, or visit. If I was driving by after work, I like to stop. Uh, for a period of time, I went very often. And it was part of my morning experience. And I realized how peaceful it was one night when I was there. There was a fox and different animals that were out a little bit further away. And I was just sitting there, though, going, wow, this is actually a really sacred area for me because my, my brother's here and everyone would think of it you know, in their, their own sense. Right. But it made me realize how those messages we get from a young age do influence us as we get older. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a juxtaposition of education, but then also like social norms and what's, what's portrayed in, you know, the culture around some of these things. I, I'm glad you brought that up because it's one of the things I wanted to talk about a little bit because my first, my, my first, man, I'm really going to have to edit this episode on my part. You're good to go. Um, my first experience of loss when I was younger, I, I had lost, you know, a couple people that I, I wasn't really sure, you know, what that meant. Um, but I never went to a funeral or anything of that. And then Unfortunately, when I was in fourth grade was the first time I directly was uh, hit by, by a friend who committed suicide. And, you know, my, um, my uncle Kenny had committed suicide when 
I never met him. I wasn't alive at the time, but we had always heard that, but I, I didn't quite know what it was. And, and then in fourth grade, I found I was sitting with this and not understanding. I like, I knew the concept, right. But I didn't understand what that meant. And I didn't understand uh, what it would look like going to a funeral or to a graveyard in, in that significant situation. And so I just didn't go. And it's one of the, one of the biggest regrets I have from being that age. And, you know, I'm not beating myself up about it because I, you know, I was in fourth grade, you know, stupid stuff happens all the time in fourth grade, you know, silly stuff always happens. And so I, I'm not holding on to that, but I really missed that opportunity of changing that juxtaposition of like what a funeral and what a graveyard would mean to me because I just avoided it because I was too afraid of what that is. And I think that's fair. I think it's fair for a young kid to do that, but I do think that's where some of that, that um, conversation around these things comes into and then finding your own path forward with it. Because I, I never really, you know, my parents talked about the situation my parents um, obviously had experience with it, but I don't know if I ever really felt comfortable enough to talk about how I was feeling in that because again I was like oh this is so so new to me and uh, I'm just going to move on right um luckily through throughout life I've been able to like you're saying go to grave sites and actually see them for what they're worth in that solitude and that connection and and that remembrance much more than that fear um but I think it's a a real thing that exists 100% for younger kids absolutely and I was very blessed because my parents, I am very grateful for their ability to stay connected to myself and my sister while grieving their son Mm -hmm. and going into just a little bit of our personal journey. My father was a probation officer, plus a therapist, um, professor for social work at one point in his life. Uh, he's worked a lot in these fields. My mother was a nurse for most of her her life. And I know the two of them have shared since that they struggled because they felt, how could we be in these positions of helping others mm-hmm. and then not have been able to help our own son? And so we also had to learn about that type of death with suicide. Right. That's It's a different type. Again, it's not saying that it's it's worse, but it's different. And it comes with different types of pain, questions, things that we go through after. And I was very grateful for my parents to pull my sister and I aside. So at the time I was 21, Jeff was 23 when he died, and my sister was 25. And they pulled us aside and to, to the side of the house, actually, I'll never forget standing there with them. And they said, my dad just in a very calm voice said, we have to make a decision as a family. Your brother died by suicide. And we knew that. So he wasn't telling us at that moment, but just saying your brother died by suicide. We can share that because people want to know who don't know how he died. Most people in town knew he had been struggling. He had come back from Iraq with PTSD and made it. He was home about a year before he died by suicide. But he struggled with severe PTSD. 
And my father just said, you know, what do we want to do as a family and how we approach the public with your brother's death? And we all said we wanted to try to help others because we tried to help Jeff. And that was a big part of it was the feeling of anger towards establishments that we felt would have been there to help us in our time of need that we had reached out to and repeatedly didn't receive the support. And then anger at ourselves for feeling like we should have done more. All of us had the, we, we should have done something more. And it took years of processing. This isn't something that happens in a week or two weeks. There's not a start and a, a no, finish no, no. with a direct line. <laughs> it's a, you know, a, you start at the time of death and then you're going through forward and backwards and ups and downs and squiggles. And there's no straight line to the healing point. I'm grateful to say that I found a new normal, but it took years of different counselors until I found the one that was a good fit for me. Um, one of them, I swear, wanted to have me committed at one point, um, so I, but uh, she she was really great. I just don't think she was the best fit for me because she didn't understand that while I was sharing my pain, I don't think she understood suicide. Right. And um, as a professional, if you're working with certain people, I've realized now moving into my own professional life that it's so important for me to know the people I'm working with. Because then you don't jump to judgments and you don't see right. things you know, maybe elevated that aren't because there are a lot of normalities, whether it's culture, types of loss, people, just their backgrounds in general that mm. might make them act certain ways or say certain things. And that's part of their process to finding a new normal. So I was very grateful, though, that my parents pulled us aside and they kept us part of the process. We stayed as a, a family unit and trying to make some of those decisions. But then we did need to branch off and give space because I agree very differently than the other members of my family. Um, And there was a point that, you know, I thought maybe my sister needed, you know, more like more support or, or wasn't grieving correctly or my, my mother. And really that wasn't my place to say that because they were. They were just doing it differently than me. Right. That's um, it. You know, in such a such a loss, I think it's beautiful that your family could come together and have that conversation because I think that's a really tough conversation to have, right? And you know, especially more more tough if uh, tougher. I don't want to say more tough because I'll get yelled at by my mom, who is a teacher. Um, <laughs> I think that's a tougher conversation if you're not all on the same page of how you you want to move forward with that. And so the ability of your parents to pull you both aside and have that conversation, I think is a really beautiful moment. And for you and your sister to engage in that too, and everyone coming together and saying, no, we want to be open about this so we can help others is a credit to your family for sure. I felt very blessed because I know, you know, we have a small family as well. So it was kind of easy to have that conversation where a lot of families are more spread out. Uh, They are larger, they might be um, blended families. And so it, it creates different scenarios where not everyone has that ability. And then it was trying to figure out how to move forward. And one thing that in my grieving process, 
I found myself trying to fill Jeffrey's roles. Um, and so I, he used to stack the wood. And so after Jeff died, I was trying to fill any of the things he would do. So stacking the wood. I'll tell you, Steve, I hate ladders, hate them. Mm-hmm. Um, and people laugh at me because I've gone skydiving. I've done all sorts of things. It's different if I'm moving at a height, but to just stand on something and stay there, it's not a comfortable thing for me. Right. So <laughs> when it comes to my family celebrates Christmas and Jeff always did the Christmas lights. And the first year that we were willing to put them up, it was about two years after he died. He had died by suicide in my parents' home. And so they really hadn't done much around the holiday stuff until my sister had a child. Uh, My niece was born. It brought new life into our family. And it really, when I say brought new life into it, it, Lauren brought life into all of us. And we put the Christmas lights up and I, I got up on that ladder and I'm trembling trying to put these, these lights up there. but. I realized reflecting after that I had been running myself rampant because those are just two of the many things Jeffrey did. I had been running just in circles, trying to fill his role plus doing mine. And nobody was asking me to do it. It was my own inner feelings of a need. And so I think sometimes we get caught in that really fast pace environment, trying to fix it. And I think that's the biggest thing now when I'm working with my colleagues and I'm sharing with the teams, when they're speaking to our, we call them our survivors, you know, people that we're connected with, they have to remember they can't fix it for them. Right. And as professionals, as family members, as a friend with a friend, that's to me a really important narrative to keep reminding ourselves of is that we can't fix this. We can help them through it and process it, but we can't fix it for them and to to slow down once in a while. Right. So and I think being going back to, you know, both of us admitting that we're self-professed self-professed fixers, right? That's a hard that's lesson true. to learn because you see something, you say, all right, this is what we do. And a lot of times, if anyone's ever been in a relationship, they know that that's not how you have to show up for people. A lot of times you have to show up as a support and how they need you to show up and having that foresight to have that conversation sometimes or just to be there and have them lean on you, I think is is a really important part of this too. Yes, I and- agree I like what you were saying too about counseling and, and something I wholeheartedly believe in. One, you have to have a really strong connection to the person you're working with or the therapist you're working with, because that's so much of the work is feeling safe and trusting and, and having that connection. And then two, both on what you're talking about of, you know, that one therapist that you were like, oh, I'm pretty sure she wanted to commit me uh, on that aspect of, of grief. And then also with people struggling with suicidality too, I think it's really important to sit with and really understand, like you were saying, culture, that person individually and understanding what they're saying and what it means instead of just jumping right to the, uh, I got to protect myself. So I'm going to make these phone calls uh, and then let someone else, as shitty as that sounds, like sometimes that is the metric because 
people, like we said earlier, people are really like, oh, how do I manage myself? And when I first started counseling, that was a, a hard thing <laughs> because you, you get inundated with all these messages and you're like, what do I do? What do I do? And the more I do it, the more I find if I can just sit with that person and just let them speak, I get a clearer understanding of what they're talking about, where they're from, still making safety plans, still doing all of that stuff and having supports in place, which is a lot. You get a lot more out of it if you sit and engage rather than just go to, again, fix. Let me fix this. Absolutely. And I think some of the statements and I don't I can't recall 100 percent because this is years ago. Mm-hmm. But some of the statements I believe that or had alarmed her was something around me saying, I just wanted to go to bed and not wake up the next mm-hmm. day. Now, I was not saying that I was going to go home and end my life. Right. But or, or I was saying something along the lines also of, you know, if I didn't wake up, don't don't be heartbroken. I, I didn't have thoughts of wanting to die or thoughts of suicide or intent to to die by suicide. But I was feeling so overwhelmed that I didn't know how to articulate it. And that was one of the biggest things I've learned throughout my journey that I've been taught by the people I work with and serve. I'm honored that they are my best teachers. I've had amazing professors too and colleagues, but my, my best teachers are the people I actually work with. 100%. Yes. And they, that's something that comes up as a theme. So when you're working with people who've gone through trauma Um, any type of of severe pain and loss, oftentimes you get to a point where you might be so overwhelmed that you make a statement uh, because you're just saying, I don't want to have to deal with this again tomorrow. It's not saying I want to die, but I don't want to have to deal with this. And it, I found gives a doorway when people make those comments to exploring what it is they don't want to deal with more. And then trying to look at that as the onion. I know um, a lot of people use that type of scenario is we have all these layers and just trying to figure out what is it that maybe together as a team, we can try to work towards. So you feel a slight bit of relief. We can't take it away, but we can start to add some relief maybe in certain places. And that is one of the biggest things I've learned from my, my great teachers of the people I work with is what is it that I can do for you is the question I want to be asking instead of sitting back, listening and trying to make a judgment call on who they are and not letting them tell me who they are. Right. Because I need them to tell me who they are, what they need, where they're at. So it's, it's been a lot of, of great teachers. Currently I work with, some of our most um, high risk uh, and people who have shared that they need safety plans in place and that they are struggling to the point where they have had thoughts of wanting to end their life. And that is one thing that I feel honored that people are willing to share that with me because it's a very sacred space that they're opening up and saying, I'll let you in on some of my most painful thoughts and moments and being able to try to work with them around that. Suicide is still, I think, a very taboo word. Uh, It hits a lot of our populations. If you look at people try to break it down in graphs all the time of, you know, these certain genders, age groups, uh, professions, and really suicide has no bias. It, It will 
approach every and any person if the perfect storm is created. And that's, it's usually not one thing. It's usually a whole bunch of things coming together that create that perfect storm. And that's why it really is so important for people just to be able to have the conversations um, and teach about it to others, always be open to learning. One of the, the other areas that I had learned about years ago was the difference between self-injury and behavior such as cutting compared to suicide. I always thought if somebody injured themselves intentionally, that that was a sign of suicide and it's not. No. And And there's a lot of learning. There's a big thing. I mean, there's a lot of education around that, even in school systems where they see those behaviors, those uh, survival traits, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And then they say, well, you're unsafe, so you have to uh, go home and you have to get treatment. And I think a lot of times without knowing that difference that where you're talking about, uh, it's a disservice to a lot of kids. Sure. Absolutely. And then how we approach it, as you're saying, you know, you have to go home just that first part already starts to sometimes make a child or a person already feel different in a bad way. And many times we don't have to make people feel different. I think all of us go through times where we feel like we just don't fit in anywhere and it just hits us at different ages. And um, with children, it's so important to always try to make them feel like you know, you're your own person, you're normal in your way. And we just want to make sure you're safe. It's And a lot of times I think we focus on the negative behavior instead of what we want to see as the positive, which is safety. We want to keep people safe. Yeah. We had a, a guest on the podcast and we were talking about her recovery. And I was talking about how there felt like you have coping skills. And then a lot of times counselors will say maladaptive coping skills to refer to, you know, these things that we were just talking about. And I was saying that still feels really negative to me, right? Instead of really, or limiting uh, to me, instead of really trying to get to the heart of it. And she shared with me, she said, well, you know, in my recovery, we call those things survival traits, instead of this, this negative connotation it's like this is what you used to do to get through stuff we want to make it so you don't have to do that anymore but we want to look at like this did something for you we got to find a different way to do that now and i think that's a that like i you know just that wording blew my mind when we were talking about it It was like that makes so much sense and i told her i'm gonna steal that from now on (laughs) so i i think it's a good way to look at it Sure. I think I might steal that too, because that's huge. And we see that I'm sure in, in all different helping fields, but working with, and I go back to grief so much because that's my world right now, Yeah. but self-medicating my brother self-medicated when he came home from the war mm-hmm. at that age, I didn't understand it. Um, I'm not saying that I, I was innocent. I would go out and, and have too many drinks and things. I was, I just turned 21. Uh, when he died, but when he came home, he was self-medicating and I was getting angry with him. Um, one specific was Christmas Eve. He chose to to stay home and it was, the, we're very small family as I shared. And we had very um, strong traditions that we all enjoyed and going to my grandmother's house was one of them. Jeff chose to stay home and that was a, 
just an odd thing for all of us because we were so excited. He didn't miss a holiday. He was overseas right in between the, the two holidays. Right. And so he made it back by the following Christmas. And sadly, what he had stayed home because he wanted he needed to drink. He, he needed to self-medicate. He wasn't able to to go out and enjoy the, the holiday season. While we were at my grandparents, I was calling him to check in and he didn't answer the phone. So I raced home and I, I found him completely intoxicated at the house. And I'll never forget just not understanding why he would choose, because in my, my head, it was a choice, yeah. why he would choose to stay home and drink instead of come to our family's holiday gathering. And I remember my parents' sense have changed their house drastically. That was, um, I'll touch on that in a minute, but that was a, a need for them. But I was standing between the refrigerator and the kitchen counter. It's kind of like a small area there in my parents' home. And I was so disgusted with him. I, I think that would be the word to describe it. My feelings at that time, my lack of understanding, my anger, it came out as disgust. And Jeff came up in front of me and he just looked defeated. He, he, he looked like the shell of who he was. And he had tears in his eyes and he said, don't you understand your brother's a murderer? And he threw some dog tags at me that he had been wearing that were not his. Um, and that moment, I realized that this was so much more than alcohol. This was so much more than wanting to drink. And I remember saying, no, Jeff, you're just my big brother. And then we talked for a little while longer, and I don't remember any of that. But at some point, I was able to feel like he was safe. I think I got him to, to lay down for a few minutes, and I took the cordless phone and went out on the front step and called my parents. And I said, you need to get home now. There, there's something going on. And they came home, and then we started to realize how bad it was. And that's what started our journey in December and January of getting him into professional support. So that was the starting moment. And that mm -hmm. was December, January. And then he, in June, it was about to get that help. But it was a mechanism for him at that time to just get through the day because right. he was dealing with these demons that were something I didn't understand inside of him. Fast forward to Jeff dying. Well, now I'm drinking more. My father's drinking more. My mother was actually drinking more too, but my father and I really fell on the lines of self-medicating. Mm -hmm. And we, we share that now with people that we, something we were so angry at Jeff for, because I didn't understand. I'm going, just stop drinking. Just stop. Now I'm in the same cycle. Right. Because that trauma, that ripple effect when he died, passed on to us. And a lot of people that I've spoken to who had thought about, seriously thought about suicide and had attempts, have shared that they thought if they just took themselves out of the equation because they were causing so much chaos within their, their family systems, that everybody would get over it quickly and then move on and have healthy, happy lives. 
Mm-hmm. That's not the case. And they re- most people realize that after and are thankful that their attempt was not successful. Um, I, I think Jeff would have as well, because that ripple effect from 2004, I can tell you now and going into 2023 is still strong. Yeah, I, I've now also try to support people around substance use because that's an area when I fell into self-medicating. In fact, I, I graduated with a degree in social work after a couple of years after Jeffrey's death and I bought a bar. <laughs> so, you know, it's just, it, the two don't usually go together. Yeah. Yeah. Found out there was a lot of social work happening there as when I was bartending. Mm-hmm. But I, I realized I was just all over the place. And it, it it's given me the gift of insight, though, into these worlds. I, I don't regret anything that I've done along the, my, my way, but I'm sure people in, within our town um, you know, are like, oh, gosh, you know, where's Deb now? Because there were times I was really struggling. And I am thankful that I can have the empathy and compassion when I talk to people who, who share how they're struggling with self-medicating or with anxiety, with any of these, these struggles that I can try to just sit there with them and say, I know some of what you're going through. Right. I don't know it all. And and I know my journey, but I know some of what you're going through. And for anyone who's listening, you know, when it comes to self-medicating for me, I found replacing that habit with other healthier habits and safer habits was what helped me. So I definitely found myself in an area that was going down the wrong path. And now instead of, I switched eventually from, you know, wine in the evenings to it was sleepy time tea with lemon and started to get on a little more of a kick. And then uh, now I think my, my strongest addiction is, is bubbly, but I do have an addictive personality and I know that. So I try to be very aware of, the healthier coping um, lifestyles, walking. I walk my dogs way too many times. I think (laughs) they see me go to get my sneakers and they try to hide. Let's go. Oh no, (laughs) they they do the opposite. Oh no, they're, they're hiding now (laughs) after about the fourth or fifth walk during the the day. They're like, are you serious? (laughs) Um, Yeah. When the pandemic hit and we were all home all the time, my poor dogs, uh, it was like every hour we're going for a walk. (laughs) Yeah. I, I went on a lot of walks from the pandemic hit too. And the same thing with like uh, survival um, traits. You know, I think I've been drinking this, uh, this hop lark uh, sparkling hop tea that looks like a, a beer. Um, but really it's a, it's, it's a black tea that has hops in it. So it tastes kind of like a beer, but it's just tea and that has bubbles in it. And that's a, that's a journey I went on about three or four years ago. Um, not, not because it, uh, escalated to anything intense, but to the point where, Oh, I'm, I'm seeing myself go into the cycle a little bit more than I feel comfortable with. And I want to take that, that step back from, um, Debbie, thank you so much for, for being open and sharing all this. I, we could probably go on for another hour, <laughs> about probably oh, yeah. a couple hours <laughs> on this. Um, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm really impressed with just all the insight that you shared. And I'm really thankful that you've been open and, and shared this stuff with us today. And I, I think there's a lot there 
I'm going to, I'm going to get your, uh, taps organization and, um, all that stuff I'm going to put in the show notes just for supports, because we are talking about a lot of intense things. And I, any listeners listening who may be struggling with this, I want you, and I'll do this on the introduction too. So this, if you're listening, this is the second time I'm talking about it, but there'll be resources in the show notes, because I think that's really important with what we're talking about, um, for support and guidance. Thank you. I want to move into just like how we always end the, the, podcast, which seems a little bit different than what we've just been talking about. But I think there's room for levity when talking about heavy stuff as well. And so I want to ask you um, two questions. If you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? And the second question, what is your real life superpower? So if I could have any superpower, it goes along the lines of everything we're talking about, um, Mm -hmm. but it would be to stop pain from all different reasons though. But that would be the, what I would want as a superpower is to be able to stop pain within myself, to stop it within others for any and all reasons, not just grief related, but just in general. So that would be the one I would want is to be able to stop pain. I'm always uh, impressed with people who answer with such conviction and insight because my answer is always a, a cheap way to get more superpowers. <laughs> My answer usually is, is like, oh, I would control probability. So if we're in a world where there's superpowers, the probability of me having that superpower is one in a billion, but I'd be that one. So it's like a cheap way to get, get all these superpowers. <laughs> and mo- most guests are like, I would do this to better the world. And I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> um, and then what do you think your real life superpower is? I think my real life superpower is is my willingness and heart to want to help people. Um, yeah, you know, I at work they tell me it's de escalation mm. that I can you know that it's it's de escalating people because I like going into those areas where people are really angry and upset because so often anger is misunderstood as well and where do people put their anger? So it's usually I, I'm comfortable with sitting there and being that, that kind of punching bag for someone's anger until we can get to where it really is coming from. But when I look at, at myself, one thing I'm, I'm really proud of is my just natural instincts to get involved when something happens. Um, most recently at Thanksgiving, you know, we were, at Cracker Barrel because we we currently live in an RV and so we are at Cracker Barrel and there was a car accident that was right across the parking lot and there were all these people in the parking lot and the woman opened her door and then this she ran to the other side screaming and I realized that she was screaming because she had a little dog in the car when she went to the other side the dog jumped out and ran up yeah just total shock I'm sure but ran up and was trying to hide by apartments and nobody went over to help. And I was like, you know, grabbing the dog leash and telling my husband, you know, get things so that we can help her get her dog and running across the street. And then was trying to help take her dog to the vet. Thankfully both were okay. um, The woman and the, the dog. But I was just a little taken back by how many people didn't hop in. And then yesterday, 
I saw a dog. Maybe my stuff is about animals. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> but there's a, the dog at the place where we're staying that is really uh, extremely skinny. Extre- it looks like one of the animals that you'd see on those commercials for help. Yeah. And the gentleman also seems to be struggling a lot. So I, I went to Walmart last night and got this 44 pound of dog food that I was going to slip over by his place last night and then realized I can't carry it that far. So <laughs> I don't, I'm going to figure out how to do this. There's not a lot of slipping with 44 pounds of dog food in your arms. No, I was going to leave that there with a note and some, I got some other stuff and, but I realized I can't be that sneaky because I can't carry the darn bag that far. Right. Um, but one of the things that someone had shared with me is maybe when I was sitting back going, why are all these people not doing anything that they shared? Maybe I was the one that was a little out of the norm because mm-hmm. you know, society has created an area where it's like you're scared to help because you never know who's going to be thankful and who might sue you or everyone wants yeah. to protect themselves. And I haven't been tainted by that. Yeah, I think is my superpower for, for me as a person is somehow I react first and think second. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a blessing. Other people yeah. won't, but I think that's a blessing. So. <laughs> I love that. I think that's so good. Thank you for, for those answers. All right. Last question as my microphone self-adjusts the volume for some reason. Uh, last question for you is um, what is one thing, if you had to boil down this whole conversation that, that we've been talking uh, for the last hour on, you had to boil it down, what is one thing that you want people to take away from this conversation? If you're not grieving, take the time to learn about it. If you are grieving, give yourself grace and know that most people don't know the right things to say and the right things to do. So be your own advocate and try to to give yourself that self-care that you need. Perfect. I'm not even going to add anything to this conversation because I think that's a perfect way to leave it. So Debbie, once again, thank you. I feel so honored and blessed to have you on and thank you for being open and sharing. And, you know, I think you're doing Jeff's memory like a great deal of honor with the work that you're doing and how you're moving forward. So thank you for being here with us. Thank you very much.